Welcome to the Awaken Podcast. At Awaken Church, we are passionate about wrestling with and being unraveled by the Christian scriptures. Ideally, we do this together around the table in the neighborhood of Bonas. As we see it, Jesus has invited all of us to encounter Him in a diverse community and participate with Him in a mission of loving our neighbors. All right, um, if you're new today, <laughs> we've been slowly uh, reflecting on Jesus' last 24 hours. Um, and so while most churches in the world today are reflecting specifically on the triumphant entry, we're actually a week ahead uh, in terms of the chronology of Jesus' life. Um, Although I think you will see clear uh, themes of triumphal entry as we get to the end of uh, this reflection. So um, this is a, a very difficult text, let me tell you, to study and meditate on and to enter into. Um, and so we're going to begin. Um, I'll we'll read it together slowly, and then uh, we'll reflect. And then before James comes up and, and helps us uh, meditate on it more, we'll, we'll read it again. So, um, And then at the end of this, I updated the slide deck, but it might not have but there should just be a blank slide uh, that we can keep it on after this. And then the image I'll, I'll show at the end. Um, but Okay, so here we are. Um, and Amy, I love this. Uh, she had uh, Mark 16 to 20, um, but I'm actually including the, the verse 21. So 21 will be in here. The soldiers led Jesus away into the courtyard of the palace known as the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole cohort of soldiers. They dressed him up in a purple robe and twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on him. They saluted him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again they struck his head with a stick. They spit on him and knelt before him to honor him. They knelt. They spit on him and knelt before him to honor him. When they had finished mocking him, they stripped him of the purple robe and put his own clothing back on him. And then they led him out to crucify him. Simon, a man from Cyrene, Alexander and Rufus's father, was coming in from the countryside. They forced him to carry his cross. Now, crucifixion was a form of state terror. And it was an effective means of enforcing brutal authoritarianism through a culture of fear. Fear persuades people that it is better to endure injustices fatalistically than to resist them. After torture and execution, which is very much what crucifixion was, bodies were usually left in the open or prominently displayed by the roadside to terrorize passers-by. Whether the torture was generally kept secret or generally public and whether the victims were individuals or families or groups, the intimidation was directed at the population as a whole. Now, a really important thing to consider, I think, especially as Western Christians, um, is that the Romans believed that pain and death could be endured heroically. Right? If you have to die, you should die valiantly with your honor intact. This is a common part of our collective subconscious, even now, isn't it? If you have to die, you should die valiantly. Truly heroic people are able to die well. If you've ever watched any of the Viking shows or Viking movies, what is that idea that if you die begging for mercy, you won't make it to Valhalla? But if you die bravely, you'll go to glory, right? We're all familiar with this idea. It's very common. 
Um, I remember fondly a line from the 2006 cinematic masterpiece 300 about the 300 men of Troy who fought against the Persians. Remember that movie? One of my favorite lines ever, the wife of Leonidas. She says to her, her husband, her Trojan warrior, as he prepares to go to battle, Spartan. That's a very bad detail to get wrong, I think, in this story. A little bit. This is Sparta. Okay, I remember now. This is Spartan. This is not matter for the sermon. I'm trying to... <laughs> this is some, some nice humor before... Okay. Um, one of my favorite lines of that movie, actually, it comes from the wife of Leonidas, um, where she tells her Spartan warrior as he's preparing to leave for battle. She looks him in the eye and says, come back with your shield or honor. As if to say, come back victorious or dead. This is true honor. Uh, you, don't, you don't run in fear. You don't run away. Don't come back. If you've lost the battle, come back on your shield. Uh, and it's this cultural idea that a truly victorious, noble person would die valiantly. Uh, we know that the Romans were a very militaristic people and that this was very much their way of life as well. Uh, the Romans knew um, that you could be a hero in your death. So imagine, the Romans have to be extremely careful because if they're going to execute rebels and resistors, they have to make sure the victim could not die nobly and become a hero. That would be a real risk you would run. Victims might redeem themselves in public memory by dying well. And so to prevent this, crucifixion was designed to be sickening and unspeakable and so degrading and overwhelming that a noble or heroic death for the victim was absolutely not an option. It was designed to not only end life, but to disgrace the memory of the victim. Now, an especially disturbing detail in the accounts um, in Mark and Matthew of this scene is that both uh, gospel writers explicitly state that the entire cohort of Roman soldiers um, is assembled for whatever takes place in this private room called the Praetorium. So a cohort, if you don't know, is about 640 men. So a century is 80 men, and then 10 centuries is a cohort, and I think 10 cohorts is a legion. So whatever is about to happen in the Praetorium, they first assemble the entire cohort. Um, and they bring the, uh, Jesus into the Praetorium, which is the army's headquarters. So this is a room where the soldiers feel very much at home. And they have gathered for the purpose of mocking Jesus. In Mark 15, 16, the first verse in our text, it says, The soldiers led Jesus away into the courtyard of the palace known as the Praetorium, and they called together the whole cohort of soldiers. That's 640 men and one Galilean Jew. This is an overwhelming show of force and intimidation against a single prisoner. A noble death is not going to be an option. What are 640 men going to do to crush the spirit of a single Galilean? Mark doesn't give us many details about what takes place in the room, but we know a few things. What we know is that Pilate had sentenced Jesus to crucifixion, but before that, they took him into a private room with hundreds of soldiers to strip him naked, put a purple cloak and a crown of thorns on him, and to mock him, and to spit on him, and to bow before him, hailing him king of the Jews. We know this would have taken several hours, because Mark tells us sort of the time of day when he died, and this has been going all night since they were praying in Gethsemane. We know that when they were finished mocking Jesus, they stripped him naked again and put his own clothing back on him, 
and then led him out to Golgotha. We know that Jesus was so weakened by the events that took place in that room that he was unable to walk and carry his own cross, and they had to ask a man named Simon to carry it for him. So we cannot know for sure what happened to Jesus in this room, but we know it was awful, we know there was a lot of people involved, and we know that he was barely alive at the end of it. I will tell you, um, the text says in English, uh, they mocked him. And I, I grew up going to church, and I'm picturing kind of like, neener, 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 like this sort of like high school, like, I'm the king of the castle, or like, Romans rule and Jews drool, like whatever, like mocking, like this kind of silly, like this sort of this like, oh yeah, they had a crown of thorns, it's mocking. But um, the word mock is very essential to understanding um, the unspeakable violence of this scene. The Greek word for mock is um, impezo. Uh, this word impezo, they impezoed him. And I'll tell you three places in the Bible where this word occurs and, and then tell me if, if you can kind of get the sense of what Mark is trying to tell us happened. In Genesis 39, 17, when Potiphar's wife is falsely accusing Joseph of sexually assaulting her, she says, see, my husband has brought in a Hebrew to mock me. That's the word. In 1 Samuel 31, King Saul has been defeated on the battlefield by the Philistines. And he asks his armor bearer to quickly kill him. And he says, lest the Philistine soldiers find me and make sport of me. The same word, mock me. So if you can picture in a battle between one king and another, the one king is defeated, what do the soldiers of the victorious side do to the king? What, does, what is Saul afraid of when they say that he will make sport of me? And the armor bearer is too afraid to do it, and so Saul um, uh, takes his own life uh, to avoid uh, you know, the fear of what would happen. And thirdly, in Judges 19, the Levite takes his concubine, and he puts her outside with a mob of angry men, and the text says that they wantonly mocked her all through the night. Now, the Romans often described and portrayed their military victories with sexual imagery of the Roman victor sexually dominating the defeated foe. This was very common um, in ancient Rome. Uh, some of the ancient examples of this are quite vulgar and explicit in public. It wasn't a shameful thing. It was like great pride to know that the, the Roman victor had um, fully dominated uh, their defeated foe or their political opponent. Crucifixion is a form of public display of military defeat. Jesus dies, after all, a king of the Jews. He's one of Rome's defeated political opponents. And although none of the art in Christian history portrays the crucified Jesus as being naked, he was most certainly crucified naked. In a patriarchal society in which men competed against each other to display virility in terms of sexual power over others, the public display of the naked victim by the victors in front of onlookers and passersby carried the message of sexual domination. In the Old Testament, shame and nakedness are nearly synonymous. Um, to be seen naked is to be shamed. Uh, in Isaiah 27, the prophet says, your nakedness will be uncovered and your shame will be seen. So to be stripped naked publicly is an act of sexual humiliation. It's an act of sexual violence. And we know that the crucifixion was designed to hold up the victim for display as someone who has been at least, if not literally, metaphorically, sorry, has been at least metaphorically, if not literally, emasculated. When it comes to crucifixion, the Romans weren't just killers, but artisans of terror. And so as we meditate on this scene in the Praetorium, I'd like you to consider this. 
Never once in the Gospels is Jesus praised for enduring the pain of the cross. Jesus is never described as dying valiantly or with his honor intact. Jesus is never portrayed as one of the great warriors who made it to Valhalla. Jesus is praised, however, for how he endured the shame of the cross. It's a pretty big difference. Paul notes in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, that he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. We often get caught up sometimes in our substitutionary atonement theology around Jesus' death, and we say, well, he's innocent and had to die to satisfy you know, the justice of God. Um, but remember, if, if, if the whole point was just that the innocent you know, son of God had to die, there are a million ways to die that would be less shameful than the kind of death Jesus died. In Hebrews 12, verse 2, it says that for the joy set before him, he endured the shame of the cross. The shame of Rome and crucifixion was not nails in the hands. It was the public display of sexual domination and the prolonged display of the prisoner's naked, shamed, and broken body. Crucified men were not crucified with their legs crossed and one foot on top of the other, as our art often portrays. There was actually another crossbar at the very bottom so that the feet could be um, pointed outwards so that the person would be crucified in a posture that exposed the prisoner's nakedness in the most vulnerable way possible. In 1 Corinthians 1.23, Paul writes that the crucified Christ is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. The pain of crucifixion is all too clear in our images of the cross, but the disgust and offensiveness associated with crucifixion is all too clear. Um, the disgust and offensiveness, sorry, associated with crucifixion in the first century are harder to understand. It's hard for us to imagine that Jesus could have endured um, sexual violence. I think it's important as a church in the West in 2023 to reflect on why that is. What we know about sexual terror and people who've survived sexual terror is that they are often silenced and their stories are left untold because of the shame and the stigma of the unspeakable violence. And so they take him into a private room and they assemble 640 soldiers and spend hours mocking Jesus. Sometimes in the West we think that Jesus died a heroic death, that he was silently noble in the face of pain. I wonder how many of us in the West imagine picking up our cross and following Jesus to heroically endure high amounts of pain. How many of us have competed about who has a higher threshold for pain. Um, I was really in the home birth movement, like 100%. I've been, I've been a part of that. This confusion is actually a pretty great tragedy when you think about it, because I don't think this story of torture and humiliation and execution of Jesus is about how Jesus dissociated from his body so perfectly that he was able to die nobly. This is more likely a story about the incarnate God going to the greatest depths of shame and humiliation with his holy, broken body so that everyone who has ever been in that room would find Emmanuel, God with us, God who has been with you. The thing about trauma, um, one of the primary factors in determining if an experience was traumatic or not for a person um, is the way that the event isolates the survivor. 
If the event leads to a sense of shame, it can feel impossible to talk about the event or tell anyone or even sometimes to acknowledge that it happened even to yourself. If the traumatic event happened in private, without any proof or any witnesses, it can be very easy for a survivor to doubt their own memory of the event, to blame themselves or to question themselves and to ultimately talk themselves out of talking about it. They're sort of frozen in the memory and unable to speak, remember, or feel. A trauma survivor could go years or decades in a state of nervous system activation as internally they are forced to live in the tension between knowing something bad happened and not knowing if they can trust their own memory and not knowing if anyone would ever believe them if they, and not knowing if anyone would ever believe them and not knowing if they would be further shamed and shunned if they were to talk about it. Studies show that sometimes the aftermath of talking about the traumatic event is more traumatizing than the event itself. And so the person might decide to push the event from their memory, even if it stays active in their body. It's a silent suffering, and it can be very disorienting. That's the thing about shame. It's very powerful. Trauma specialists say that one of the most profound gifts you could give someone uh, uh, who's experienced trauma is to be a witness. It's incredibly healing. Uh, you can imagine, I'm sure, um, to be able to tell your story in a safe place where the person who listens to your story responds with, I believe you. This isn't your fault. Your complex feelings make sense. Your responses are normal. Of course you're confused and afraid. I'm sorry you've held this memory for so long. I honor you. I affirm your dignity and your worth. I'm sorry you've held this memory for so long. Trauma can be death-dealing without a witness. Imagine, imagine holding on to an untold story for many years and then suddenly hearing someone say, I was there. I saw what happened. And, and you're not lying. And, and you're not crazy. And you're not exaggerating. It was really that bad. And it, it really genuinely was not your fault. And it wasn't in your control. And you didn't cause it. I saw it. I was there. For someone who's been stuck in that secret room with an untold story, that would be life. Right? Without ever having that witness, though, as we often don't, one can live in a constant state of fight or flight, distrusting themselves and certainly distrusting everybody else. And so when I read uh, the text in Mark 15 here through the lens of trauma, I realize suddenly, and this is the most powerful story in the Bible for me, like this has been a transformative uh, week for me, I realize that um, I'm not just a reader. I'm a witness. Often when you read the Bible, you try and put yourself in the story and be like, if I was in Jesus' shoes, would I do the same thing? Or if I was in that character's shoes, would I have, which character am I? And we really try to like put ourselves in the story. And yet in this story, I realize Jesus is being brought into a private room where there will be no witnesses. They will strip him naked, put other clothing on him, mock him for hours, then strip him naked again, put his clothing on. He's being brought into a private room when there will be no witnesses. It will be Jesus and countless Roman soldiers. Jesus is a visible minority, speaks a different language, and they view him as a political opponent. So whatever happens in that private room remains hidden in that private room forever. What happens in, what, what starts in that private room is the beginning of an untold story. And yet, Mark leads us 
the reader, leads you, the reader, to the door, brings you, the reader, inside. He doesn't describe for you what is happening. He just lets you witness the unspeakable. Can you hear the voice of John cry out, Behold the man? Give him your eyes. Behold. Be a witness in this story. And, and, and let your heart uh, uh, find the courage to respond to the story and say, I saw what they did. It wasn't your fault. I saw you. I saw what happened. I saw you dissociate. You had to. I saw how weak they made you. You couldn't even carry your own cross. I'm sorry there was no one there to stop them. I'm sorry you were alone. Someone should have been there. Someone should have protected you. Mark's inviting you and giving you a gift and bringing you into the room and saying, what can you see? And when, when, when we approach the text this way and we're reading a story of someone else's trauma, whether that's uh, uh, the defeated Saul or um, the falsely accused Joseph or, or uh, the unnamed concubine who never speaks once in the story, you, the reader, um, I hope that as we encounter these stories, we realize the power of witnessing someone's story. The power of our own eyes, of our own soft heart to host the untold story, the unspoken trauma. And I think when we read this text, um, we're invited to welcome the story, to serve the story a warm meal, and to tell the storyteller that they're safe with you. We're going to uh, read Mark 16, uh, uh, sorry, 15, 16 to 21 again. Um, and this time I want to invite you to be a witness. Don't try and be a character in the story, just be a witness. Mark 16, uh, 15, 16 to 21. The soldiers led Jesus away into the courtyard of the palace known as the governor's headquarters or the praetorium. And they called together the whole cohort of soldiers. They dressed him up in a purple robe and twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on him. They saluted him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again they struck his head with a stick. They spit on him and knelt before him to honor him. When they finished mocking him, they stripped him of the purple robe and put his own clothing back on him. And then they led him out to crucify him. Simon, a man from Cyrene, Alexander and Rufus's father, was coming in from the countryside, and they forced him to carry his cross. If Jesus knows what it's like to be taken to the private room where secrets are formed and shame takes root, where acts of unspeakable violence are committed, where one's voice and one's dignity and one's sense of safety is stolen away, if Jesus knows what it is to be in that room, then maybe part of the gospel is that no one has ever actually been alone in that room. If Jesus is the incarnate creator and lover of the world, then maybe in this story Jesus is showing us that love always chooses the darker path into the heart of pain, the heart of shame, and just maybe in Jesus we see a God who proclaims, I was there. I was with you in that room. I was with you in those memories, and I am with you in those untold stories. You have a witness 
And although I feel this very strongly myself, I'm sure most of us are feeling it, although it is uncomfortable to think about Jesus enduring this kind of violence, I pray that we wouldn't turn away in our discomfort like we often do when survivors bury to tell us their story. May we remain here with him like the invitation at the very beginning of life. Remain here with me. Stay awake with me. May we behold the Lamb of God. And if the day ever comes when you feel you can't do it, and if you ever begin to wish for defeat, I pray that you would find God there, beside you, on his knees. I notice um, some people uh, this week, uh, we were talking about this story and um, kind of Roman evidence around just how much sexual violence and domination was involved in all Roman crucifixions. Um, and we were reflecting on like whether it's a good or a bad thing that all of our depictions of the crucifix have Jesus in a loincloth. And there's like two, two ways to think about that, right? Like on one hand, you're like, no, why are we uncomfortable with nudity? Jesus died naked. Jesus should be naked in the art. This is important. Um, but the same way we cover it, because we're like, that's too much. We don't want to see that. I think sometimes when, when um, survivors of abuse uh, come forward with their story, we're like, okay, that's great to a point, but there's eventually, like, we need to, eventually we can't, right? So it's like, are we hiding? Are we in denial? Are we hiding from the reality of the shame of the cross? And so we kind of put a loincloth on Jesus and all the art. Is it bad? Like, should we, should we uncover the crucified Jesus? Um, but interestingly, if you think about it, especially in Matthew's gospel, like the day before this event would have taken place, Jesus stood up and talked about the sheep and the goats. And he says, when I was naked, you clothed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. Whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. When I was naked, you clothed me. And so suddenly I'm struck by how profound it is that the naked Jesus has been clothed. We gave him back that little bit of dignity and we put that uh, cloth back on him in all of our art to say, when you were naked, we clothed. And if we can reflect on that and the tension there, I wonder what it would be like for people um, who have felt naked and ashamed, what it would be like to be the kind of people who would clothe them, who would give them back that dignity and say, your dignity and your worth are important. I think this story, um, I'm going to invite James up here in just a moment here, but um, I think that if this story is doing something uh, in our midst, my prayer is that uh, this story shows us a God who is there with us, not just in the glory of resurrection, but in um, the painful place uh, where untold stories stay hidden. And I think in this story, we hear the words of God. We hear um, God speaking over us the words of Psalm 129, one of my favorite psalms, which after realizing this story and realizing that there is really no violence that Jesus did not experience, um, I hear the words of God say, if you went up to heaven, I would be there. And if you went down to the grave, I would be there. And if you could fly on the wings of the dawn, stopping only to rest on the far side of the ocean, I would be there. And if you felt like the darkness would hide you and swallow you up forever, or that the light would become night around you, even the darkness isn't too dark for me. I would be there. The psalmist in 129 says, I, I created your innermost parts, and I knit you together in your mother's womb. Your bones are not hidden from me. I was there. 
So I'm going to pause uh, before communion, and James is going to come and help us. Uh, Um, yeah, it's, it's profound stuff to to contemplate. I was just thinking of Psalm 44 while Nikayla was talking. Um, just a little personal thing when I went through, like I'm a survivor of a lot of violence in my childhood. And uh, when I was going into that deep, dark place, and I want to talk about a little bit about that line in the creed that says Jesus descended into hell. So I want to kind of tie this together and I hope I can do it well. But when I I had this verse kind of going through my head and this is sort of the body keeps the score stuff. Like, oh, why am I so attracted to this verse? I don't even know why. But it's just kind of a verse I found and I've been coming back to it. And then suddenly it popped open for me in therapy, <laughs> not surprisingly. Uh, but this is the verse from Psalm 44, and I'm re well, this is the NRSV, and I had learned it out of a version written by Robert Alter, uh, but it, it goes, our hearts have not failed, nor have our footsteps departed from your path, even though, uh, even though with death, no, it goes, even though you've thrust me down to the sea monster's place, and with death's darkness covered me over. So it kind of was a reflection of me like, hey, I'm a pastor. I know lots of Bible stuff. Uh, all these sort of things, uh, coping strategies. You know, you can use spiritual stuff to cope and not actually deal. Um, so I was coping with that verse, but I wasn't dealing. And then with my therapist, I was saying, because she'd say, oh, bring stuff or songs. So I brought this, like music or whatever. So I brought this one. I was like, oh, blah, blah, blah. And then I suddenly realized that the sea monster's place, the sea monster was my abuser. And it like when it kind of hit me, it really wiped me out. Like I was extremely emotional um, because I just recognized that God uh, not only was with me in that moment, but, but God was giving me language because you need language to tell a story, to be able to to know, to know your own trauma, to know what you've gone through. Because if you don't have language, then your body doesn't know. You can't make a kind of a coherent narrative, which is very difficult to do. And so Nikayla mentioned witnesses. That's so important. Like there's one therapeutic thing that people do when some, in some group therapies, people will be trying to share like this happened and they're trying to put the pieces together like I was like this and were they an abuser? Was my parent? assaulting me or was there they're trying to like because that's such a forbidden line to cross to say that um, and so you're really wrestling there's like psychological stuff and body stuff and your body can do crazy things um, and so shouldn't say that I take that back your body does very appropriate things that are right for what you've been through in your life so your body's just responding in a very wise way, usually, just because it's trying to keep you safe. It's trying to hold it all in, because um, the truth can, for some people, the truth is an absolute devastation, because you have to flip the page, particularly in my case with a parent, 
we have to go, oh, that's not my parent, that's my abuser. So flipping that is a big psychological hurdle. Um, anyhow, having witnesses, and I had, I went to a couple kind of group therapy things, and you, someone could say, a witness sees, and they can, they can say what they see, and then you're, there's rules, you can't project what you think you see, but you're trying to just repeat that. This is what you're saying. This, and that can be really powerful. Uh, and again, it's truth. It's quite something, like because there's kind of like Bible truth, the abstract, but it's like real personal truth. And so descent, Jesus descending into hell, like what is that? That's quite a line we use um, in the creed. And you go, oh, what does that line mean? You know, there's a guy in my previous church I preached on this, and he got really upset because we have all this baggage as evangelicals about literalism and literal hell and like what are we trying to say so he was convinced I was wrong and he amassed a lot of information to prove to me that Jesus never went to this literal hell and whatever and that's really an adventure in missing the point uh, is trying to like work that out because it's like what does that line mean don't try and literalize it. What does it mean that Jesus descends into hell? And Karl Barth, the great uh, Protestant theologian, yeah, you're probably not interested in him. <laughs> okay, one person. Thank you, Darcy. Uh, but he was trying to... Okay, there we go. Okay, there's two, so amen. Uh, but he... He wrestled with all of these things because he hated this idea or disliked this idea of God as sheer power. Like God's just, you know, like sovereignty, God's going to mow us down. I'm sheer power. I got a plan. If you get in the way of my plan, I will mow you down because my plan is the right plan. And if you have contrary feelings, I don't care because I'm God. Right? Like even in this story we're looking at, a lot of people see God as like, the observer of Jesus' suffering, which is a very toxic anti-Trinitarian idea. Like it's very, very bad, but it we have it. Like it's in, it's just lodged in because of the way we teach or way we have teach taught about these things. Um, and so Jesus descended into hell, God's power. And so Bart tries to say, what is God's power really like? Or all God, Father God Almighty, the first line of the creed. He says his, the way he puts God's almighty power is he ties it with his love. Because Jesus in the story, if he was like us, like if I was God or whatever, and people, I was being assaulted or something was going on, I'd just wipe everybody out. That would be me. I'd just be like, I'm going to murder everybody because uh, I'm a bad person. <laughs> but, you know, or that'd be a human reaction to be revengeful and all these kinds of things. That would be a reaction. But Bart instead wants us to see that is Jesus' love. This is his power to endure, to go into hell and rescue everyone he can. And so... That's kind of a different way to look at power. You know, we look at power as kind of forcing our way to get something done. This is a different shape of power. 
the power of love. Please don't start singing that song. Uh, yeah, too late. I know. As soon as I said it, I could just feel it. Everybody's thinking of Back to the Future 1. Like, uh, But I just want to read this verse as kind of a closer as we think about this. But I think of Jesus... Um, You know, I think of Jesus descending into my heaven. I don't have to think of a metaphysical, fiery place or whatever. Or I can hear this story. Jesus is in heaven. And we, lots of us have hellish times. And that's where he descends to. That's how powerful his love is. That no matter how abject we are, no matter how broken or shattered or assaulted or whatever that thing is, Jesus, through his love, even though we feel negated as a person, he arrives. He arrives in that hell to be with us. That's his love. It's a remarkable thing. And this is how Paul said it. And I think some of these ancient Christians, you know, they understood living in hell. Like going through hellish things. And so Paul said, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he names some, some hell stuff. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We were regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things. Here's this... Uh, turning this kind of logic around. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth. It's kind of a reflection on that Psalm 139, right? And maybe Paul's even kind of got that lodged in his mind a little bit. Nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so it's in Jesus, the one who is willing, who chooses uh, to enter into hell on our behalf and rescue us. That's my thought.